Welcome to Men's Health Matters with Dr. Tom Walsh, Director of the University of Washington's Men's Health Center and Associate Professor of Urology at UW, featuring important topics dealing with men's health, including prostate cancer and erectile dysfunction. Now, here's your host, Neil Scott. Men's Health Matters, now more than ever. Welcome to another edition of Men's Health Matters coming to you from the iHeart Studios in Seattle. My co-host is Dr. Tom Walsh, director of the University of Washington's Men's Health Center. He's a surgeon, professor, and a staunch advocate for matters that deal with men's health. Men's health matters in so many ways. I mean, it matters to you first and foremost, but it also matters to your family, your friends, Men's Health Matters. How are you doing, Dr. Walsh? How are things over at the Men's Health Center? Neil, thanks for asking. I'm doing great. I'm enjoying sort of a reprieve in our Seattle weather. It's cold, but I feel like the rain has let up a little bit. We are busy as ever. In this edition of Men's Health Matters, we're going to take a new look at STDs and the latest information on HIV AIDS. And we have an exceptional guest with us, Dr. Santiago Neme. He is the medical director of the University of Washington. What do men need to know about sexually transmitted diseases? How do you avoid them? How do you know if you have one? And what do you do if you become infected? And what is the most common STD? All this and more coming up. But first, as we do in every edition of Men's Health Matters, we take anonymous questions on any subject dealing with men's health. Listeners can submit questions anonymously. Our first question is from Bill in Tukwila. Is it possible to find out if I am at high risk for colon cancer through genetic testing? If so, I'm wondering if you can suggest a website would 23andMe provide any information? Uh, Bill, the answer about 23andMe is that I don't think so. You know, 23andMe is a screening test to help you understand something about diseases you may be a carrier for. And these are really not the predominant things that are going to affect your risk for colon cancer. There is not an immediate direct genetic screening for colon cancer. However, what we do know is that colon cancer is easily detected. There are a couple of different ways, but the gold standard remains colonoscopy, which currently is recommended at age 45. Unless you're carrying a risk factor, and if you have a first-degree relative who had colon cancer or died of colon cancer, these are reasons for you to consider being referred by your doctor to a gastroenterologist at an earlier age. Next question is, Dr. Walsh, I heard you discussing telehealth on the recent edition of your program. Can that be done with mental health issues? Can I do it with my camera off? And does your clinic offer that service? The quick answer is yes, yes, and in general, no. The Men's Health Center is is generally not a place where we consider ourselves experts in mental health. I think in this era of the practice of medicine, almost every doctor has learned something about mental health and it pervades every aspect of how we deliver care. To the extent that mental health impacts men's health, absolutely. But can you get mental health care via telemedicine? Absolutely. Can you do it but in a, in a way that's comfortable for you in the privacy of your home? Absolutely. And there are many different ways to do that. If you don't know where to start, I always say starting with UW Medicine is a great place. And William from Edmonds, what role does nutrition play in the prevention of disease? I try to eat well. I take plenty of vitamin supplements, including a probiotic. My friends say that's a bunch of nonsense. I'm in my early 20s and I'm a bit paranoid about my health. I think there's really something behind what 
what my grandmother used to say, which is you are what you eat. And, and it is absolutely true that nutrition is pivotal for so many areas of disease and in performance medicine. And you and I know, Neil, we've had the director of performance nutrition here mm -hmm. as a guest. And this is a good reminder to us, it might be time to bring back a discussion of nutrition. Does nutrition necessarily cure disease or prevent all disease? Probably not. But it certainly is one of those really critical exposures that plays a big role in how we age and how good we feel and some diseases. You know, I, obviously I am not a pivotal expert in telemedicine, mental health or nutrition. Do you mm -hmm. want to weigh in on any of those things? The only thing on nutrition that I would add is that what you eat can also lead to you being obese. Obesity we know is associated with multiple cancers, cardiovascular disease, early death. It is important to watch what you eat, to also watch your calories, and if you want to build muscle, you want to eat protein. Remember, you can send your questions anonymously on any health issue to Men's Health Matters at iHeartMedia.com. We will not retain or share your email address. This is 100% anonymous. Our guest is the medical director at the University of Washington, Dr. Santiago Neme. He is also the associate dean of the University of Washington School of Medicine. Dr. Neme has been with us before during the COVID pandemic when he was on the front line of treatment and research in our state. Welcome back, Dr. Neme. Thank you, Neil. Each year, there are some 20 million cases of STDs in the U.S., according to the Centers of Disease Control. Over 7,000 cases in King County alone. And certainly STDs can be embarrassing, but they can also be extremely serious and must be dealt with. What are the most common STDs and what do men who are sexually active need to know? Thank you, Neil. That's an excellent question. I would like to start by reframing the phrase STD, which implies that we are symptomatic and we're having a disease. Most are STIs, that means sexually transmitted infections. Most of them can have no symptoms. This is why we are now referring to them as STIs. What are the most common STIs? We have different types of STIs. They include viruses like the herpes virus. We know genital herpes is quite common. Common. We also have in the bacterial category, we have chlamydia and gonorrhea, which are very common. Chlamydia is often silent. There's also other STIs like hepatitis B or HIV, which can be completely asymptomatic for many, many years. That sounds troubling being asymptomatic. Absolutely. Well, we see that with infectious diseases. For instance, in COVID, we learned that 40% of, of people may have COVID without any symptoms. The same with uh, STIs. You can be infected with HIV for many, many years until you present symptoms. Dr. Walsh? I love it that we're talking about this topic. What interests me about this, Dr. Neme, is that we often have young, asymptomatic, but concerned men who come into the Men's Health Center. And that's how we arrived at saying, this is something we need to talk about. So it's, you know, that guiding principle we have of looking for an entry point into better health. This is a huge entry point. Are there vaccines available for common STIs? So Neil, great question. The vaccine uh, for hepatitis B, uh, which is transmitted um, sexually. We also have the vaccine, a very important series, which is the, the HPV vaccine that would protect individuals from anal cancer, from warts, and also penile cancer, throat cancer, and multiple other cancer diseases associated with that. We also have, although we don't have hep hepatitis C 
uh, vaccine, we have effective treatment that basically cures the infection. Now, for HIV, although we don't have a vaccine yet, we have very effective prevention of HIV through medications. What is the most common of the STIs? If you think about including asymptomatic and symptomatic, would be chlamydia. It's typically silent, followed by herpes. That's extremely common, but with herpes, you usually develop symptoms, especially the first episode. And I would say currently we're seeing a, a very significant rise of syphilis cases that we're seeing not only the population of men who have sex with other men, but also in women who are pregnant. What immediately comes to my mind is this idea of the asymptomatic nature of many of these cases. And, you know, when you don't know you have something, you know, it doesn't drive you to do something. So my immediate question is, who should be seeking out STI investigations or testing and where should they be doing it? This is a critical question. I would say the answer is pretty easy. If you're sexually active, you meet the criteria to be screened. We don't need to wait for symptoms. If you're sexually active, you should be screened. How often? It depends on your activity and it depends on the number of partners you have. At the beginning of any relationship, it is really advised for both partners or more than, than two partners to get tested and see and, and check their baseline and then provide with appropriate treatment or therapies or vaccines. So this has to be done early on when we start to be in a, in a sexual relationships. And then when we change partners or we might be in a relationship that's open, this is not about your symptoms. Obviously, when you have symptoms, you have a more pressing need to seek that testing and treatment, not only for your well-being, but also the well-being of others, because treatment secures that you're not going to transmit this infection to others. Talk a little bit about the testing process. Where do people get tested? What does testing mean? I assume it's a blood draw. The STI testing panel typically includes the collection of blood. For instance, we test for syphilis through blood sample and for HIV the same. But if I want to detect chlamydia or gonorrhea, I take samples that could be urine, it could be from the throat, it could also be anal. So these are swabs that detect bacterial or viral DNA and then we proceed with treatment and not only the treatment for yourself but your partners. Again, it's about prevention of others as well. How long do the tests take? I mean, how, how soon does a person get the results? I would say two to three days, you usually have uh, results. At the University of Washington, we have a very robust STI program where you have basically most of the test results within 24 to 36 hours. And if someone is having symptoms, it's really important for every man to know that if you have symptoms, you can be treated what we call empirically, meaning that I treat you right away while I'm waiting for results. What is the cost of testing? There's many avenues for testing. One, if you go to your primary care provider and you have insurance, it, that should be STI test is routine and that should be covered by most insurance plans. Now, in King County and at the University of Washington, we could test folks for free. King County has a very large STI clinic on 9th and Jefferson here in Seattle. Also, the University of Washington will see patients regardless of their ability to pay. Dr. Walsh. Dr. Nemi, I'm, I'm going to put myself in the seat of, uh, I'm imagining a, a young listener 
hearing all of this, and I know that there's still this tremendous fear about a couple of things. Number one, uh, the privacy that surrounds this. The reality is, is that we still live in a, a U.S. society, still puts a lot of taboo associated with these types of infections. I'm also thinking about the experience of the testing, I mean, and the treatment. Is it painful? Do we have to worry? Dispel some myths for me about the pain and the confidentiality and all of these things. It's a rather straightforward uh, procedure, I would say, test. Why? Because one is a lab draw to test for certain things that we talked about. And then the the swabs at the University of Washington, where we discovered because of that stigma and because patients don't sometimes you know, don't want to have other members of the team really collect samples on them. What we do, we do a self-collection where the individual goes into a bathroom with the swabs and then depending on their sexual practices, we we indicate, okay, you need a throat swab or you need an anal swab or you need a sample of urine. And that's something that the individual can go into a bathroom and collect and then give us the samples. What I would say is that it's always kind of nerve wracking when you're waiting for that result. And back in the day when I started getting tested, you had to wait a few days. Now, HIV testing can be done in one minute. Dr. Walsh? I still remember a time in both my medical training and my career where this was a really, really scary disease. And I remember living through that period of time when the treatments were frightening and the, the certitude of treatment was, you know, there wasn't that certitude. And I was just wondering if you could walk us through the evolution of this disease a little bit and the change in how we perceive HIV and its treatments. When we first saw the, the first cases of HIV and I would say of AIDS back in the day, it was around 1981 when we started seeing young men quickly die of HIV infection leading to AIDS, which is the, the definition of HIV that is really advanced. Today, we don't talk that much about AIDS. We talk about HIV as a spectrum of symptoms over time. It's really important to highlight that we went from an era of no treatment to a really highly potent treatment that initially involved multiple drugs. And now most of my patients are only on one pill a day. And actually we now have an injectable treatment that you get injections every two months without taking any pills. It's been really 180 in terms of the development of HIV medications and how powerful they are and how friendly they are to people. Initially you had all these like nutrition requirements for certain drugs. Now it's something you just put in your mouth, you drink, just the same way you would consume a vitamin. The other thing Neil and, and Dr. Walsh Nowadays, people who live with HIV have a normal lifespan. In the past, people with HIV, as you know, didn't live long, and then they lived a, a bit longer, but now it matches the life of a person who is not living with HIV. And that's really critical and monumental if you think about the millions of people who died over time associated with HIV. And I would say there's still people who die from HIV today, and it's typically because they didn't really get diagnosed early, they didn't get on medications early. This really highlights why it is important to get tested not only once, but frequently depending on your sexual practice. 
Our guest this month on Men's Health Matters, Dr. Santiago Neme. He is the medical director of the University of Washington, which is the number one medical center in the state of Washington and in the top 20 nationally. We're going to continue our discussion about STIs and what men who are sexually active need to know. We'll do that right after this. When you hear erectile dysfunction, you probably think of the blue pill. Erectile dysfunction is a male health problem with many treatment options. It's very important that you know your options and consult a urologist specializing in erectile dysfunction treatments. Visit us at edcure.org or call 206-222-0323 to get more information. If pills and injections haven't worked for you, a board-certified urologist can help. With just an outpatient procedure, they can restore your ability to be intimate whenever, wherever, and for however long you want. It's spontaneous, confident, drug-free, with no side effects or ongoing costs. Visit us at edcure.org or call 206-222-0323 to get more information. Again, that's edcure.org or call 206-222-0323 for more information. Sponsored by Boston Scientific. We are back on Men's Health Matters. I'm Neil Scott. My co-host is the director of the UW Men's Health Center, Dr. Tom Walsh, as we continue our visit with Dr. Santiago Neme. Dr. Walsh? Dr. Neme, you know, it's phenomenal to have you here. And I'm using this as my own clinical consultation, if that isn't obvious and apparent. One of the things that really commonly I hear from my patients is they'll describe to me their particular sexual preferences and use that as a platform to say, hey, you know, this is my sexual preference. I don't need to be screened. I often just don't know the answer. And so I'm asking you. That's a really uh, important question. Why? Because I think that over time we've learned that there's so much stigma with certain practices and then there's a lot of labeling. I stopped asking folks, whether they're gay or straight or bisexual or pansexual, all I'm asking my patients now is what they do. What is the activity they do? And I don't care really if they call themselves gay or straight or bi. I just want to know if you're a man, are you also having sex with other men? Regardless of what you think that means, practically speaking, that helps me realize okay, what are the risk factors? Because if you're a man having with other men, especially more than one man, then that puts you at risk for certain STIs, including HIV, for instance. So I think it's important to take that shift in the way we ask questions as doctors. So then we remove the label and we talk about what actually happens. I can be a straight man, but I could have been a victim of sexual abuse or something that happened to me. So it doesn't really matter who you are in terms of sexual categories. I think it's important to understand what people do. It's the action, not the identity. Exactly. So this is why it's not that something's for gay men or straight men or bisexual men. It's really what they do. If a man has a symptom of an STI, and decides to ignore it, maybe out of fear, maybe out of embarrassment, maybe out of denial, what happens? Well, I have to say most men who are concerned about an STI, it's a recurrent feeling. The symptoms may get better, but the worry may stay. Mm. By understanding or remembering that a lot of the STIs can have very, very long 
asymptomatic periods, I might not treat my own STI early enough, and I might also give my STI to all of my partners, even though the symptoms are not there, they're better, they're minimized, or they come and go. If I have genital herpes, the symptoms can come and go, and it doesn't mean that I'm not posing any risk to others at, at that time or that I shouldn't seek treatment because, again, if someone's ever had genital herpes, it can be pretty painful. So it's important to really know that you acquired an STI and then what are the steps to make you feel better, to treat you better, to give you tools so then you can make your own decision according to your sexual life at that time. Again, sexual activity changes as we age, as we grow, as we find ourselves. So it's important to equip ourselves with tools. In other words, put on your big boy pants and get tested. Exactly. Dr. Walsh? This is, again, HIV, for example, is this disease that used to be deadly. But what I'm hearing you say is that in a private, secure, high-fidelity way, people who are at risk have this opportunity to enter the healthcare system, learn something about what they've got, have painless testing, painless intervention, and have no essentially ill effects that are of great consequence. My objective is to motivate those who are out there worried about this to make a change and to do something different and to translate this into perhaps other behaviors too, whether it's acting on how much they're exercising, improving their diet like we discussed earlier and their nutrition, or checking their blood pressure or their blood glucose for diabetes or getting a PSA for prostate cancer screening. All of these things fit together. And this may be a great place for some of our listeners to start. What about the issue of confidentiality in all of this testing? Well, all testing is confidential. You can actually have completely anonymous testing mm. when you go to some of the clinics in the community. For, for instance, Gay City, the health project here in Seattle, or Nathan Jefferson, you can actually have anonymous testing you basically go in and you can have, instead of your full name, you can have a code and then the results are given to a code as opposed to a person. Should you need additional testing at that point, then situations can change where you're going to have to enter, let's say, if you diagnose with HIV or you need prep or other strategies, you're going to have to enter some personal information at some point, but the initial testing can be done completely anonymous. What are some takeaways for men who are sexually active? I think it's important to know your status. You, you want to get uh, tested for not only HIV, but other STIs. And particularly, I would say it's really important because I would say about eight years ago, all we had for prevention was actually using a condom. And we know that Men, if given the choice of using a condom and not using a condom, we know that we all prefer not to wear a condom. So, but what's available now? So you have a key strategy for prevention that has to do with pharmacology, has to do with the treatment. Men at risk for HIV, meaning having more than one sexual partner, having sex with other men, more than that, we know that there's a treatment now that is prevention. So I could give this person a pill one a day that's 99% effective at preventing HIV even without wearing a condom. So basically it's like a birth control pill. 
Absolutely. And the beauty of this is just like birth control, it's a tool that you can use while that activity is happening. It doesn't mean that if I get put on Truvada for PrEP, I'm going to be on PrEP for the rest of my life. Maybe at some point I settle and say, you know what, I'm just going to have sex with one person. You drop PrEP. But PrEP has a key place for all of us who are sexually active with more than one person. The other thing, Neil, is important to know is that a person who is effectively treated for HIV and has undetectable viral load, that is zero amount of virus in their blood, cannot transmit HIV to anyone, even without a condom. So this is why there's PrEP, where you get put on this medication daily, and then when you encounter the infection, you don't get it. It's 99% effective. Amazing. Then you have the treatment as prevention, which is if I'm having sex with someone with HIV who has effectively zero virus because they have an undetectable viral load, from that person I will never get HIV, never. And then so there's zero risk in that situation. And then the other prevention is, let's say I'm not on PrEP, I haven't been taking my med, my, my Truvada daily, or I'm not having sex with a person who's known to have HIV and effectively treated, I'm having sex with an unknown. Let's just say I went to a party, I had a few drinks, and I ended up having sex with a stranger. I have up to 72 hours to get started on PEP, which is post-exposure prophylaxis. So basically, after the sexual act, if I come, let's say, to any UW Medicine ER or urgent care, Obviously, the closer to the event, the better, but you have up to 72 hours to get put on meds that, that treat HIV for four weeks. That treatment is very efficacious at preventing you from getting HIV from that encounter that you're not sure about, or it, it could have been unwelcome, or it could have been not consented. Those three tools are really important to know, but obviously this coupled with the frequent testing depending, and we like to treat sexually active folks with more than one partner. We like to test them every three months. Um, so then we can pick up that possibility and also get them started or at least have the conversation around PrEP. I think that a key part of this is that for anybody who's sexually active, no matter their orientation, their identity, you have to get a baseline test. And also for everyone entering a new sexual relationship with anybody, no matter who you are, what you do, you want to get tested. So then you enter that relationship with the information and the precautions and the treatments and the vaccines that you need to have a successful relationship, not only from a loving perspective, but also from a sexual perspective. So let me clarify there, because even if I am a straight individual, embarking on a relationship with another straight individual, I should get tested? Yes. Every time, new relationship, get tested. What about the partner? Likewise, they both get tested. That's an interesting conversation to have. But an important one. So there's your call to action. Basically, if you Google CDC, PrEP, HIV, you're going to have a lot of information. For King County, you can Google King County HIV PrEP, and you're going to have that. And a lot of programs make HIV PrEP completely free and covered, even if you don't have insurance. 
I, I, let me just say that I think this program has been a terrific public service message. Yeah. I know that there is somebody out there listening and that this is going to make a difference. This is an opportunity for that person to make a more global change. You know, learn about your status, get a test. If you're at risk, consider being on PrEP. If you're exposed, consider getting post-exposure prophylaxis. This is where science and art have really come together to make a difference in human life. And in this case, men's lives and all the loved ones around them. Do what Dr. Neme said, you know, go to the, go to the website, go to the clinic, do what you need to do. Dr. Neme, you are from Argentina. What message would you give to our listeners who speak Spanish? Me parece que es muy importante para todas las personas que hablan español que que de la misma forma que estamos hablando se hagan una prueba al comienzo de la vida sexual de una persona, pero también al comienzo de toda relación. Es importante por ejemplo, en UW Medicine, eh, para que vengan, tenemos servicios en español y le podemos proveer eh, pruebas gratuitas para que usted tenga el tratamiento, la prevención y las vacunas que debería tener para su eh, relación sexual. Eh, no importa si usted se identifica como, como gay, bisexual o lo que sea, simplemente queremos decirles que estamos acá en UW Medicine para eh, todo lo que necesite sobre su salud en general, pero también sexual. Muchas gracias. That wraps up this edition of Men's Health Matters. Special thanks to our guest, Dr. Santiago Neme. And remember to send your questions on men's health to menshealthmatters at iheartmedia.com. I'm Neil Scott. On behalf of my co-host, Dr. Tom Walsh, thanking you for listening to Men's Health Matters and wishing you good health and good sense in matters relating to men's health. Stay healthy, live in gratitude, and be kind to one another. You've been listening to Men's Health Matters with Dr. Tom Walsh, Associate Professor of Urology at the University of Washington and Director of UW's Men's Health Center, and your host, Neil Scott, on Sports Radio 93.3, KJR-FM.